Hi everybody, I hope you are having a wonderful day. I am here and I'm a little sad because this is the last podcast with Kathleen, at least for a while. I think we'll probably have her back again. But um, we've, talk, we've been talking about brain development. Kathleen is the director of the Education Neuroscience Foundation and we've been talking about brain development. But one of the things that we've, I've discovered as we've talked is that she says that there are some myths around brain development. So this particular episode, we're going to talk about um, brain development myths. And she's going to bust some of those up for us um, and so that we can go forward um, with correct information. So Kathleen, thank you again for being our guest here on Let's Talk Parenting. Um, please, for those folks who are, this is the first time they're hearing you, would you give a little bit about you and your organization? And then go ahead and start right in on Mythbusters. I'm going to ask you questions as we go along, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. Well, thank you for having me. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Kathleen Leos. I'm a co-founder of the Education Neuroscience Foundation. And the organization has really two purposes. We support ongoing research for the education neuroscientists um, who really look at brain development from pre-birth all the way through adulthood, truthfully, of how individuals learn best. Um, The focus that uh, we have really honed in on um, has been in the early childhood space, and we're going to talk about that today. Um, I I come to this whole topic from both a personal and professional um, aspect, and so I've spent years in this area. I'm not a researcher myself, but what we do is we work with the education neuroscientists and then we distill the findings into practical strategies that can be used in classrooms and at home. So today we're going to focus on parents um, and what some of the information that they may have heard you know, from multiple sources that may not necessarily hold up when you really take a look at the research and what the researchers are telling us about how the brain works, how it develops, and how we can influence as adults and caregivers and parents and teachers, how we can influence that development that's based in fact as opposed to what we say is fiction. And so this topic today is um, called Myth Busters, and there are really um, kind of 10 areas that we have outlined. Probably won't get through all 10 today, but um, I will provide a backup document so that you can download, read, um, et cetera, et cetera, in case there's an area that that we don't touch today. So I'm going to start out with um, talking about mythbusters. Okay, what are some of the myths? And some of the myths are, starting with that for a long time, most individuals thought that kids were born kind of as a blank slate. And so we could just do about anything we wanted and that would, you know, impact the development of the brain. Well, 
no, that's actually not true because the architecture or the framework of, of the brain for learning begins while the child is still developing in the womb, especially the last 10 weeks of gestation where um, what we find is that this, there's a beginning structure for the development of language. And the reason that is so important is because language is the key to learning, it's the key to reading, and it's the key to long, lifelong success. So once a child is born, um, we, we have to influence or impact or facilitate that learning process. So it's a concept of both balance in nature, which is what child, every child is born with, because every brain, it's a universal process, and then influencing it through nurturing. And so we're going to talk about nature and nurture, and there is a distinction between the two, but just know that when you're holding your little one, that, that uh, the beginning stages for learning have already been developed, which is why you want to um, spend time, even the last weeks of pregnancy, with talking, singing, reading books, um, listening to music, etc., because what you're doing is stimulating that brain development even before the child is born. And then you continue that once the child is born. Um, now, we, another myth... Yes. Let, me, let, me, let me ask you one question about that one. So is it the last week before children are born, or, or, or should you start during that last 10 weeks? So should it be... Oh, definitely start during the last 10 weeks. You can okay. even start a little bit before that because it will help, you know, um, facilitate the connections of those neurons that are taking place in that development phase, at the beginning of the development phase. But definitely the last 10 weeks of, of uh, pregnancy, yes. Okay, so if, if a mom's going into her third trimester, it's a good time to start that. Is that fair to say? Say it again, I'm sorry. Uh, as a mom goes into her, her third trimester... That's a good time to start. With, That's a great with time okay. to start. Good. Yes. That's what I wanted to know. All right. So, great. All right. So, the next myth you were going to get into is? Well, the next myth is we've heard, you know, little ones are sponges and okay. that there's an optimum time for learning or a window for learning, which is zero to five. And the response to that is, know <laughs> that although there is a window of opportunity in the early years, it's really zero to eight, not zero to three or zero to four. So it extends beyond the concept of the age of four to five. In fact, the brain keeps developing through the age of 25 to 27 when it finally matures. So there's a much longer expanded time of brain development and the development of learning. Um, and I think that's a huge myth because even to date, you know, many kindergarten teachers will say, oh, my gosh, we have to do this, 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 and this, you know, up to the age of five because otherwise we, we lose that opportunity for the child to learn. And that is not accurate. What they see through the brain studies is that the brain keeps developing over a lifetime. Yes, there is an initial window of rapid growth, which is really zero to 
five and then five to eight. Um, but the brain never stops learning. It's a, it's a concept called uh, serve and return because we keep serving information and the child returns it or the child gives out information and we return it. And then the neurons that are not being used during that time will just kind of naturally fall away. It's a process of pruning. And it's a natural process, so we're not losing anything. But it's important to be aware of what is taking place neurologically because we're influencing that development as the child keeps growing. So if, okay. if you run into a situation where someone says, oh, my gosh, if my child doesn't learn to, you know, um, perform a certain task by the age of three, it, they've lost the opportunity, that, that's really not true. Just keep and plugging thank along. For, be, thank, thank you for saying that. I really think that's important. Now, one of the things that you, uh, you and I have been talking about is the importance of social-emotional development. Um, yes in brain development and correct me if I'm wrong you know early childhood is my expertise and I really feel like when we try to push kids too much um, toward academic learning younger than the age of five we're not doing them the, the, the best service because really that's a time for them to focus on their emotional social emotional development and, uh, you know, am I right about that or am I being a little prejudiced or uh, talk to me a little bit about that zero to five window or that birth to pre-birth to five window um, and what really helps kids at that age with their brain development? What are the things that are just some examples that parents can do to help? I know we have the handbook available and that, that is a that's going to be available. They can click on that and get that in the um, in the uh, email that goes with this particular post. But talk to me a little bit about that, just so parents can hear and get a little bit of a of a teaser about what they're going to see in that handbook. Well, what I'd like to mention, uh, Barbara, is first of all, you're absolutely correct that um, developing a positive social emotional interaction and environment for the child is really crucial for learning. Um, and when you think about the ways of, you know, developing that in where, whatever your living situation is, it's more about the attachment between the child and the parent or caregiver or siblings or um, extended family and creating those kind of positive relationships. And, and within the handbook itself, there are uh, things that parents can do that set up that environment um, so that there there is a positive exchange. And that leads to the second um, part of this, which is pushing for, quote, the traditional concept of academics. You are absolutely correct because um, there is a step and, which takes longer um, that parents can do very, very easily, and it's really important, and it gets to the basic foundation of learning. And the basic foundation of learning is language, and it could be 
one language or it could be two languages. It, but the process for learning language begins with sounds. And right from the time the child is born, every single child on the planet is a universal linguist. They hear every single sound that's uttered in the universe up to the first nine months of life. And so at the nine months, they begin to discriminate to the sound systems of usually both parents, even if um, parents are speaking two different languages. So one parent could be speaking Vietnamese, the other could be speaking French, one could be speaking English, the other could be speaking Spanish. Um, that it, it's not the language itself because the child will discriminate between the two languages. The parents could even be trilingual. You could have a grandparent in there that even speaks a third language and the baby will still be able to distinguish among the three. Wow. So the import, yeah, it, it, and there is no conflict um, among language learners, whether it's, like I said, one language or two or three. So if a child is learning one or more language or languages during that time period, one does not interfere with the other. And that's a huge myth when parents are told, you know, be careful about what the child hears at what specific age or time in life because one will block out the other and there will be a delay. That is not true. Um, there is no delay. The brain is busy, busy, busy processing language. And back to an activity um, that leads up to a more traditional form of academics, which comes later, is making sure that each parent um, articulates very clearly the sounds of their language. So as an example, there's no R, like we hear in English, R, red, in Japanese. There's no CH sound in Spanish. So if one parent is a Spanish speaker, they're not going to articulate that sound, whereas if the other parent is an English speaker, they will be articulating that sound. Well, fascinating is that the child, the baby, will be able to understand both sets of sounds, and the parents, if they're really, really clear, then babies are absorbing those sound systems. Those sound systems are the beginning stages of phonics of phonological processing. What we call it is phonological processing. It's hearing the sound systems and on that all learning is then established. So that's, that's the really fascinating one is mm -hmm. it's extraordinarily fascinating because yes, social emotional is really important, you know, the context within which the learning takes place. And then the second step is what is being learned and how clearly are um, parents involved. So speaking a lot to the child and listening, even during the babbling stages, because that babbling is the baby's language. They're actually talking to you. Um, you know, we might dismiss it, but if, if you're really paying attention to your little one as they're developing, they're sending signals all the time, and you're developing a communication system between you and your child. And it's that 
system that carries over then into whether it's preschool or kindergarten and then, you know, through the rest of their life. The interesting part about that is that when that is happening, whether it's one language or or two, especially with two languages, they're actually engaging the entire brain. It's not that language develops only on one side of the brain as we used to think. It's that the whole entire brain is being engaged then first in the language development process, but then later in the reading process. So this whole zero to eight becomes important as the first window of opportunity for learning. Wow. I mean, wow. That's something because, you know, when we're talking about zero to eight and we're talking about early childhood, I don't think people tend to think about that language and literacy is part of that focus. You know, right. by the time a child is eight, they should be reading at the third grade level. And we don't think about all of the things that go into their being able to do that. Right. And and you can go back and you say, um, you know, we do demonstrate different things that parents can do. And we use fun noodles. Um, which are really, really fun, and we show teachers how to use them and parents how to use them. These are the, you can walk into Walmart and pick up, we call them fun noodles, and there's those splash toys that they use in, um, uh, like floaties in in swimming pools, you know, um, and you can cut them up smaller into pieces, and then the parents on one side and maybe saying the sound on one side like B, 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 or P, P, where and the child is holding the other side of that fun noodle up to their ear and they actually can hear the distinction in those two sounds. Wow. And so That's it it helps yeah, it helps facilitate the fact that that then the child is making the distinction really early on within sound systems and then language is built on that or with it. It's it's not necessarily sequential. Um and then as much communication as possible, and, and we tell teachers this in classrooms and parents at home, classrooms and learning environments, they need to be noisy. Um, they need not to be times when, well, yeah, of course there's going to be some times when, you know, kids are they looking at pictures or reading silently, et cetera, et cetera. But the process of learning is highly interactive it's through creative play, which we now all know and understand, but the environment needs to reflect that as well. So the, the space needs to be set up that way that encourages talk, talking and listening. It include, encourages interaction um, between, among peers and adult to child or volunteer or parent to child, etc. And so you're, you're actually stimulating cognition during this early phase of life and early phase of development. Okay, so in hearing you say that, I'm thinking that the kindergarten, first, second, third grade classroom need to be a lot more interactive than they currently are. Would you agree with that? Well, I totally agree with that. And, and truthfully, given part of my background, I, I, if, if I could make, wave a wand in every kindergarten class and maybe first, second, and third grade, I would say to every teacher, get the desks out of the room. 
set them up as learning centers and spaces, and you still can deliver the same curriculum. I'm not saying it, you know, it's not a free-for-all, but it's allowing students to engage with each other, with the adults in the room, and then with, with you know, the um, activities in a different way. So it's a it's extraordinarily interactive because now I'm going to get into the, the next myth, which we talked about before, which is that kids really don't have a specific learning style. We, we, we talked about this last week, I think, where, you know, it's like, do kids only learn visually or does that, is it more important that I, you know, present my materials visually because I have, quote, visual learners or I have auditory learners? And the answer to that is no. There is no preferred learning style that the child's whole being is involved in the learning process. So it's speaking, listening, um, even olfactory and kinesthetic so that, that they really are engaged in the learning process. And again, I would say all the way through third grade and then beyond because middle school kids can benefit from this as well. But, um, you know, it's something but I think that... Go ahead. Well, I was thinking early childhood. I've taught early childhood, and I've taught adults. So, mm-hmm. and and I've learned about teaching both these teaching strategies for both. And it mm-hmm. makes me wonder why early childhood and adult learning are so similar, yet we do things so differently from kindergarten to twelfth grade. It doesn't make any sense to me. You know, I mean, because my theory is if young children and adults learn the same way, then the truth is everybody learns that way. Right? That's right. And But I also think when, when you think about the developmental phase, like even, um, say, up through fourth, fourth, fifth grade, where the kids are, you know, highly interactive. And again, I, I would extend this into middle school, um, but... You can say that adults, you know, can sit down because now, you know, they're going to spend more focused time reading and, and pulling the text off the page and doing more writing, et cetera, et cetera. It's not that young ones don't because writing is really, really important. I, we spoke about this as well mm-hmm. where, you know, giving kids, young children, um, the crayons and letting them just have at it because, it's reinforcing their cognitive development, their thinking processes, and their development of language. Yeah, well, um, they may well, not the, yet. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say one of the things that I've, I've noticed, especially when kids start really becoming interested in print, even when they're drawing, you, if, you, if you look at their drawings carefully, you'll see that there are letters there. Yes. You know, so I think it's really important to... To, to note that that children, you know, having that opportunity to put pen, pencil, crayon, marker to paper really does affect the, not only their their literacy but their their um, interaction with whatever letters they're learning, whatever kind, exactly. whatever they're learning that way. Okay. So uh, yeah, I I I think I think that's important. All right, so um, 
did I break your train of thought, or do you remember what you were? No, no. And just to add on to what you're saying is, also, I think that when you are in a situation, you know, where say the kids are developing sounds, and then they attach that sound to a letter, and the letters become words, and to make sure, as a parent, if you have a picture of the word or an object. and you show that to the child or have them identify the object. Um, it could be spoon, it could be uh, a block, et cetera, et cetera. But that visual um, reinforcement goes to the back part of the brain and then it kind of completes the cycle of learning. And then they can also draw it and that helps as well. So we're reinforcing all of language development, which is the foundation for the literacy. Um, literacy, both reading and writing. Um, and you know, to, to, here's a suggestion that I have, and I give parents a lot, because um, a lot of parents talk, say to me, my child makes a mess, and I, they don't know how to clean it up. And so the, I give them a tip from an early childhood classroom. Take a picture of where you want, what that thing is, and we're, then use contact paper and print. And for instance, maybe they have Legos. And you can put a picture of Legos onto the shelf, write the word Legos, put a bin there. And when your child's done playing, you can say, put it back where it goes. I don't know where it goes. Find the picture. <laughs> yes, you know? exactly. That's exactly you know, right. I, and so that would be reinforcing at home. It would also it help with organization. It helps kids be independent, yes. you know, when, yes. when it's time to clean up. And so I just, every parent I've ever given that suggestion to who's used it loves it because it really well, and, does help. And, right. And, and think about young children or children and think um, executive function. So a child wants to, I'm done with this. I want to move on to this, and what you're saying is you can move on to this, the next activity. However, what I want you to do is see all those Legos right there, and if you put them in the bucket and then go put it up where the picture is, um, and they, they do that first, what, you're, what you are teaching is delayed gratification. And CEOs, successful CEOs, learn very early, we used to call it discipline, um, delayed <laughs> gratification. <laughs> and they are doing it themselves, and you're facilitating that executive function without coming and saying, well, you know, I can't do that until you pick up the toys. <laughs> wow, I love that. That's amazing. Oh, mm-hmm. that, oh, Kathleen, this is really fascinating. Okay, so what's our next myth? Well, what I wanted to talk about briefly is um, parents who are in homes say where they're, they want their child to uh, learn a second language or they are learning more than one language and, and either a teacher or another, even other adults will say, well, you know, um, the reason your child isn't responding because they're hearing two languages and they're, they're in a silent period. And this one just cracks me up because there is no such thing as a silent period. It doesn't exist. 
Um, if you look at the fMRIs and the brain studies, the brain is constantly active. So the child is absorbing language and two languages and then expressing themselves in different ways. But there is, you know, a time of, quote, thinking. But when we talk about silent period, the thing I recognize is if you go into a classroom and, and you say, okay, this group of children over here, they're learning a second language, and this group is, you know, learning two languages, and this one, and that's why, you know, they're in their silent period. And I, I just kind of, I would never do this to a teacher. But I would say to the teacher, um, excuse me, um, no, it's the way the classroom is set up. Because if you allow the kids to keep expressing themselves in, you know, inter-level um, heterogeneous groupings, not homogenous groupings, that they will continue to express themselves. And then I often give a little joke along with this and, and tell parents, look, I'm the single parent of five kids. Don't you think I would love to have had a silent period um, <laughs> at some point in time? And they all crack up because they know they do understand. They understand that kids really don't fall into a silent period. What they do is they may be processing while another sibling is busy expressing, right? Um, and what you want to do is keep encouraging those expressions, not to have them, quote, shut down and say, well, now it's time to be quiet. Well, yes, there's time when they're listening, but it doesn't mean that they've fallen into a silent The brain doesn't go into a silent period. Well, and I find it really interesting that, you know, teachers will say that because one of the things I've noticed is that if you are a parent and you don't hear noise, the first thing you do is go find out what they're into. <laughs> okay, well, I don't hear any noise. What are they doing? You know, nine times exactly. they're doing something that they, they shouldn't be doing. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> they're trying not to be caught. <laughs> right. When children are in their normal state of being, they're noisy. Right, right, right. Um, another myth that exists is I think those who are on the, quote, teaching end of language and languages, they say, you know, if I have a student or a child that comes to me and the parents are Russian speakers and this group of parents speak Urdu and um, this group of parents here are Spanish speakers and this, I mean, you, the list goes on and on and on, you know, because we're in such a diverse country and so we have children at different ages with different languages coming to us all the time mm -hmm. and this is you know true with even parents in the home is don't make the assumption that because a child is from another country or speaks a different language and you've got three or four language learners in your classroom or in your learning environment that somehow you have to change the instruction because this speaker of French needs to learn differently than the speaker of Vietnamese and the speaker over here of, uh, say, you know, Russian or Urdu or Arabic or whatever. No, the brain is processing language and languages all the same way. You do not have to change your um, instructional input. Now, you might have to differentiate, which is different, based on, say, a developmental level of the, of the child itself. But it's not because the child is learning. Different children are 
have different first languages. That's not the reason. And I, I find that one to be fascinating because it's like, well, what do I do? You know, I've got six or seven different kids and they all speak different languages. Well, you start with sound systems. That's <laughs> what you start with. Get your fun noodles out. Wow. Wow. You, you know, um, I think that's one that would really turn education on its head because that is something that people just inherently believe. And I'm just like, yes. You know, and, and really what I think it is, here's what I think it is. I think that we think, it, 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 this might be a little prejudice, a little, mm-hmm. a little bit of prejudice, that mm-hmm. especially here in, the, here in our country, if a child doesn't mm-hmm. speak English, they speak some other language, or even mm-hmm. if a child comes in and they, and they don't read English, but they read another language, we still see them somehow as illiterate. I'm like, That's true, right. I'm like, wait. <laughs> you know, I'm like, they're not illiterate. They, they just don't know English. But, you know, a child who can sit and read a book in Farsi is not illiterate. She just reads Farsi and not English. Right. And, and that's when learning the structure of the language, the form, content, and use of the language, and, and at that point in their second language, becomes really important because they have all those structures in their first language. And so what we're doing is transitioning at that point into acquiring the second language. Um, and you're, you're absolutely correct. It's not that the concepts aren't there. The concepts are already there. You're only, this is what I tell you know, parents, they're only acquiring another language. And so the other thing that, that I think is important for pa- all parents to understand is that the more language and languages that any child learns, you're increasing their cognitive capacity for learning. You're actually engaging the entire uh, neurological process for learning. And it's all through languages. I've I've heard the same thing about music. Does music count as a language? Yes. Yes. Okay. That's interesting. Yes, it it does. Um, One of the other things I wanted to mention also is that you're going to hear that, and this is true for all kids, well, you know, there's a specific time. It takes X amount of time to learn language. It takes five to seven years or longer to learn language at a certain level. And I'm like, absolutely not. No, it does not. It's about the input. It's not about the child. So if we are um, structuring linguistic and language input, and whether it's one language or two or three, then a child is going to rapidly learn language and multiple languages within a three-year period of time. It's about the structure and the instruction and the input. It's not about um, the child's, quote, ability to learn. And that's been confused for a very long time. To date, you're going to hear people say that. Oh, it takes so much longer. No, not not if, if you understand about instruction, what your input is, including at at home, this is why parents are so important, because what we want parents to do is to continue, no matter what their first language is, 
English, doesn't matter. French, Spanish, etc., um, Farsi, Urdu, we want them to really articulate well their first language in the home. And I mean English as well, because so often kids really don't hear the full uh what would we say, the full body of the language itself. Mm-hmm. And so as parents are really clear about their input with their child, a lot of communication, then you're actually building a very, language is a solid foundation for learning, and it is, that's where it starts. Well, you know, I, I find that really interesting. And I, again, I wonder if that is more of an American thing than it is maybe a European thing, because Kids in Europe learn languages consistently, you know, because, you know, you have French speakers, Italian speakers, German speakers uh, that are often all together in one place. And so a child just naturally learns to speak depending on who they're talking to, Um, because because the, the environment is so rich in all those different languages, they have an opportunity to not only learn them, but to use them on a, on a daily basis, which is not as true here in the state. And, and I think you've hit it really well because they're smaller countries and there's more fluidity between countries, so there's a lot more exposure. Um, whereas you take a look at just the land mass and the geography of this country, and and so it's so large, and there's so many different people, diverse communities, et cetera, et cetera. They tend to be more isolated, and so I think there's not as much exposure um, as there is when you know Europe is very small, <laughs> and there is a lot of exposure. Yeah, so well, I, I think that. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no. I just think that helps. Um, when I had um, when I, I used to work at a camp and we had international um, mm-hmm. people um, in our camp and I had uh, several friends from England, several friends from France, several friends from Germany, a couple of Swiss, and uh, someone from Africa, and they used to tease me. They're, they're like Barb, what do you call a person who only speaks one language? And I and I said, you know, the first time I heard it, I said, I have no idea. And they all looked at me. We were all in one room. They all looked at me and said, American. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I, and, you know, and and I got that. I caught that when they when they gave it to me because I actually grew up my my learning to speak years from eighteen months to three. My parents and I mm-hmm. lived in Germany, and my mother said mm-hmm. that when we left Germany, I spoke both England, English and German fluently. But because I didn't, I was no longer immersed in German, and you know my parents didn't use German as much, that I lost my German. But I've been told by more than one person that if I ever went back to Germany and immersed myself there. I would pick the language up again very quickly because I had been fluent at one point. Very quickly. In fact, I was going to mention it's like riding a bicycle. Once you learn, you never forget. And uh, 
so if if and when you go back, um, it will not take long. If those are all familiar sounds that are embedded in your long-term memory. So you will easily um, become fluent again in well, your I, second I, I'm language. One the, I'm one of the few people I know who can say Wiener Smith <laughs> appropriately. <laughs> right. A lot of people are like, they have trouble with that. <laughs> right, 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 right. Um, well, as, and the last thing I just wanted to mention is um, because this is true, we go back to, you know, the brain processes all languages the same way. And it's a universal process. It matters not, you know, what language or languages are spoken or what the input is because your brain is processing it all the same way. No matter what country you're from, no matter what ethnicity, no matter what race, no matter what your economic circumstance is, you are learning the same way. And I think that's the beauty. When when I think about, um, you know, equal access to equal opportunities and we think about what, what does facilitate that. And the bottom line for us is teach the way the brain learns because we all learn the same way. Wow. That's so important. And I think it's a really good place to end our uh, month-long conversation. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I do. <laughs> that uh, the brain works the same way, and the best way uh, to do that is to engage the brain in a lot of different activities. Reading activities, listening activities, hands-on activities, musical activities, exercise activities, and using all of those different ways of getting kids involved and engaged so that they can learn from all different areas and all different perspectives. And each one of them gives the child a little bit of a different understanding of what they're learning than if they were just reading or if they were just writing or if they were just watching a video. It's, it, it helps to engage them in all of those processes as they That's learn. Ex- yes, it, it, exactly. And, and for parents who are challenged economically, um, who are busy working two and three jobs. You know, we totally get it. And if you take a look at the handbook, the parent handbook of activities, there are little things that you can do um, if you're taking children with you, um, if you have a few moments every day. But all of this input um, is simple, and it does not take... Um, extraordinary amount of funds, et cetera, et cetera. This is just really being comfortable yourself with offering a different activity and being available. And that way you are setting a foundation for learning um, that is not dependent on anything else other than the relationship between you and your children. That's awesome. Okay, Kathleen, thank you. Oh, i got to thank you. I think what you uh, have given, given me and parents um, through these podcasts, a series of podcasts, is going to be invaluable to people for many years to come. Um, so I want to thank you so much for 
taking your time and your expertise to share with us. Well, Barbara, thank you so much, and thank you to your listening audience and all your members. Um, it is just such a joy to be able to share because I know how everyone thinks that their own child is just their most precious gift, and we certainly agree. So we want to honor those gifts. Absolutely. Um, so, folks, this has been Let's Talk Parenting. We've been talking to Kathleen Leos from the Education Neuroscience Foundation. Kathleen, will you please give your information so if parents want to get in touch with you or they want to check out your website and see if they can find more information, um, they'll be able to do that. Yes. Um, if you go to the Education Neuroscience Foundation website, which is edu-neuroscience.com, and it's spelled E-D-U, N-E-U-R-O-S-C-I-E-N-C-E dot com, edu-neuroscience.com. You can email me, KathleenLaos at gmail.com, and I'm happy to answer questions or give me a call at 202-731-0391. And if there's a question that... um, I can't answer. We have colleagues that certainly can, so we are here to help. Okay, folks, I'm going to give you parents, teachers, and advocates. Our email is P as in Paul, T as in Thomas, the word and, the letter A as in Apple, one.org. You can go there and uh, find uh, links to these podcasts if this is the first one that you come across and you'd like to hear the rest, you can find them there. Um, I want to thank you for listening to Let's Talk Parenting. Um, I am so excited that uh, we've got this for you. Um, These brain busters were very interesting, um, and I think that they will help you. Um, Take some time to read a book with your kids. Take some time to watch a movie and discuss it. Take some time to take your kids outside and find leaves and look at them and talk about them. Take some time to make a cake with your children and talk about the fact that it was liquid before it went into the oven and now it's solid. Do some things to talk with your kids about what life is and what different things they can find and explore because ultimately that's what you as a parent are giving your kids is the ability to talk and think and process all of the things that are coming across in their lives. And um, I just encourage you, um, get the booklet and do some of those activities with your kids because that is what you want more than anything and should develop their brains. And if you are a multi-language family, make sure you're speaking English and whatever other language you've got because as Dr. Leos was sharing with us today, that is going to help your child's brain just explode and grow. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Bye now.